All right, let's, uh, let's take a look at God's Word together. If you will um, turn in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, I know that what I'm doing today is, uh, is what I did last week. And the reason why I made that, uh, made that determination is because years ago when we did this and we preached from the pulpit from the daily Bible reading, I always did a, we always did a passage of Scripture from what you were going to, what you already read, or what you were going to read instead of what you already read, or vice versa, whatever it is. But anyway, you already read this. Having said that, um, we're going to do the last part of Nehemiah, and the, um, the, we're going to look at, at rebuilding principles. There's five rebuilding principles in the book of Nehemiah that are so important. So turn in the book of Nehemiah to the... Uh, the eighth chapter, we'll begin in the eighth chapter, but um, Nehemiah is right before the Psalms, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. So Nehemiah chapter eight is where we are. All right. Um, I will say this, if you're doing the whole daily Bible reading um, and you're doing the Psalms, you have a, you got a treat coming if you're doing the Psalms. If you're doing that first psalm, Psalm 140, uh, what is it, whatever it is, you're going to, you, you, it's going to tell you to praise the Lord, 147, 147 I believe it is, and it's going to give you, thir- that one passage alone will give you 30 reasons, I, I counted them, 30 reasons to praise the Lord, so that's exciting. The second little note I want to say about the Bible reading is you're going into 1 John this week. And it's the only book, First and Second John is coming up, but First and Second John are the only two books that actually refer to the Antichrist or use that word Antichrist. So you're going to read through that, get some idea of what John says about the Antichrist, because then just in a short week we're going to be in the book of Revelation and we're going to talk about that. I promised we would come back to that. And we're going to appropriately do that. All right, having said that, let's pray. Father, we pray for your blessing on the word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Principles for rebuilding. You have to understand the background of this. Israel was taken captive. The Babylonian emperor power, superpower of that day destroyed the nation of Judah. Took its capital city and just grounded to the ground, so to speak. And now, 70 years later, they were able to return. God was very gracious. They were able to return. And for about 100 years, they began to rebuild the temple. And now in Nehemiah's day, they're rebuilding the walls. It's a rebuilding process. But it's different than the first process. Because it's a rebuilding process under the government of Persia. Persia is allowing them to do it, but Israel is now just like a state, and it's not a sovereign country any longer. And when the Greeks take over the Persians, they'll still not be a sovereign country. They will regain their independence for a short period of time, and Rome will come along, and they will not be a sovereign nation. It's as if they're a state. Now, I share that with you right off the bat, because these principles for rebuilding are good for us. There's There's an important implication for us in our nation. And I want us to clearly see that. Imagine after the Civil War in the 1800s, in the 1860s, where we lost more men 
in the Civil War over 600,000 men than we did in any war we ever fought. More than the Second World War, more than the First World War, more than the Revolutionary War, more than any war we fought, 600,000 men. This nation was decimated. And we had to build the rebuild. We had to go through a rebuilding process. Now, I don't know how you see things in the United States today, but we're in a rebuilding process. We're in a rebuilding process to rebuild a nation so that we can once again hear God's word to us, righteousness exalts a nation, sin is a reproach to any people. Amen? It's kind of a rebuilding process, and these principles are extremely important. Now, we already learned how important prayer is. So right off the bat, if you're taking notes for the first time, prayer in the first half of Nehemiah is important. And if you keep that theory, if you keep that topic in your mind, you'll see that Nehemiah continues to pray and pray and pray and pray and pray for the nation of Israel. Confidence comes from knowing God. And we have to know God so that we can be confident that every effort we make to be the salt and light of the world, because this application is not only for the building process to occur in our nation, but it's the church that we're working through. God has given the church the responsibility to be the salt and the light in the world in which we live. All right? So it's very, very important that we understand that our personal confidence in the Lord is critical. And the third thing we learned last week was that we have to brace ourselves for unrelenting opposition. Opposition that does not end. Opposition when a culture changes. When I was a kid, I looked at America and I said, boy, that's a Christian culture. But even then, the seeds... The seeds of atheism and agnosticism and materialism and commercialism and humanism were there. But now the cultural war is bigger than we've ever seen. It's like it's right outside your door. It's right down the street. It's everywhere. And you and I have to understand that we need to brace ourselves for the unrelenting opposition that we're going to have. Now... Uh, Nehemiah was clear in the first half, and you and I saw that. Now, if you're sitting there and you're saying, well, you know, I feel pretty distant from that, I just want to remind you of something that Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5. In 1 Peter chapter 5, we can go back to the basics and hit rock bottom with this unrelenting opposition that we experience. And Peter says it this way. Satan walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Is there any one of us here that is exempt from that problem? No. No. Now, I remember back in Luke chapter 22, remember the night that Jesus was betrayed and he was, he was then arrested and the following day he was going to be crucified. You remember in Luke chapter 22, he's talking to his disciples when he has instituted the Lord's Supper. And he says to Peter, he says, Peter, I want you to know something. Satan has asked that he could sift you as wheat. But I'm not going to let him do it. But he's going to give you a run for your money. But I'm not going to let him defeat you. 
And the reason why I bring this up is because it's very discouraging for those of us. Listen, let me talk to everybody who is over um, (laughs) 50. (laughs) Can I safely say that? Isn't it a discouraging time in which we live? I mean, this nation is just totally changing. It's not like it was when we were kids. It is not. It's discouraging. And the battles and the battles and the battles that we face are just unrelenting. And, uh, and we just say, well, I wonder what the future is going to be. All right, here we go. Five, five principles of rebuilding. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8, we'll look at the first one. We'll try to do this as quickly as possible. And so the first one is in verses 8, 1 and following. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. That's the end of chapter 7. Now look at chapter 8, verse 1. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. The people are asking for it. It's not like Ezra's going around and saying, hey, this is what we need to do. This is what we need to do. The people are asking for Ezra to bring the book of the law. Bring the Bible. And so Ezra the priest, in verse 2, brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And then he read from it in the open square that was in the front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and the women who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Principle number one for for rebuilding is this. We need to communicate the Word of God. We need to communicate the Word of God, and we need to do it in our public squares. We need to do it in the open square. Notice, Ezra didn't do it in the temple. The temple has been rebuilt. But he does it out in the open square in, in front of the water gate. And that's what we need to do. We need to make sure in this day and age that we are sharing God's word, that we're communicating it, that people are getting to hear it. Whatever it takes for us to do that, we need to do that if we want to see a real change in this country. We would not have had the Reformation if God hadn't laid it on the hearts of monks in Germany to sit around a table and say, you know what, we're going to really study God's Word. We've been neglecting it for, for hundreds of years. And those monks got together, Martin Luther was one of them, many monks got together, not just in one not just in one place, but in another, other monasteries. They, and God led monks to sit down and read the Bible and then to share it. And because of that, we had the Reformation. We wouldn't have had it otherwise. Principle number two. Not only did we need to communicate the Word of God, but we need to celebrate the joy of the Lord. Oh, you say, oh, pastor, boy, you're starting to go abstract on me now. No, I'm not, I'm not doing that. First of all, I want you to look at the passage of Scripture that we just read. The Bible says that the response of the people, when Ezra did this, the response of the people in verse 6 was this. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered and said, Amen, Amen. 
while lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now, the Bible gives us other principles here. I have boiled it down to these five, so I'm going to skip over one that's in verse 7 and 8, and I want you to go now to verse 9, where it says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. And here's the reason why he had to say that. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. I mean, here's Ezra. He's reading the law of God. And God is convicting people everywhere. I mean, everybody. They're hearing what God has to say. They're hearing all about their disobedience. They're healing all about their sin, their transgressions, the national problems that have led to this in the first place. And the Bible says the people are really, really, really sad. Verse 10. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Everybody together, read it. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, some people live their whole lives wondering whether the Lord wants them to be happy or not, by the way. And I just want to say, happiness and joy are two synonymous terms to a degree. But joy includes uh, an element that happiness does not, because happiness kind of depends on the word happenings. You know, if you give me what I want, I'll be happy. Joy, however, is something that comes on the inside. And so you see what he's trying to do. He's trying to say, listen, there's joy in knowing the Lord. There's joy in our relationship with the Lord. And let the joy of the Lord be your strength. Celebrate it. And the illustration of that celebration, the illustration of that celebration is in chapter 8, verses 13 and following. Oh, by the way, by the way, doesn't the Bible say to them, uh, well, we're going to read it. In chapter 13, in verse 13, now on the second day, the heads of the fathers, the house of the people with the priests and Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. Ezra keeps reading the law. It's now a habit for them. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. That's our Thanksgiving Day. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. Children of Israel would have recognized that God brought them out of the land of Egypt. God had taken them out of the land of Egypt from captivity, and, and they were to be very thankful. It's an exciting time. It was a time for celebration. And so the best illustration I can think of is that the children of Israel said, well, you know what, we're going to celebrate we're going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. We really haven't done so since the days of Joshua. It's right in there later on. And so the response of the people in verse 16 is, everybody together, then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booze, each one on the roof of his house or in their courtyards or the courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. And it was a time and a half. I mean, this is celebration time. We celebrate Thanksgiving in a different way than they did. 
But it's a celebration. And it's a celebration that I wish everybody knew. That the world should see that we're excited because of God's power to deliver. Number two, number one is communicate. Number two is we need to celebrate. And we need to do it in the open square, by the way. And number three is we need to confess. We need to confess our sins. Look at chapter 9, verse 1 and following. Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Then those of Israel, those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners and they stood and they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their father. And they stood in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one fourth of the day and for another fourth they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. If we're going to see this nation rebuilt, we're going to have to make sure we communicate God's word. We're going to have to celebrate God and his faithfulness. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And number three, we're going to have to confess our sins. Now, there's a rather lengthy, lengthy description of that in chapter 9, beginning at verse 5. I'm not going to go through it. But in chapter 9, verse 5 and following, we have a wonderful, wonderful account of the history of Israel in short. That's the kind of thing that when I was in school, I'd have loved to have. I didn't like the big books, but I loved cliff notes. I didn't like the, the stuff that took me weeks to read, but I loved those little abbreviated things. And I, I shouldn't say that for all the teachers sitting here today. <laughs> Because we encourage you to take your books home and read them. But this is a, if you, if you do not know the history of Israel in short form, here is a wonderful chapter that will describe it for you. But here's the thing that I want you to see. If you're going to read this, I want you to compare God's faithfulness to Israel's unfaithfulness. I want you to read it. You, the thing you should do probably, and that's how I came up with the 30 reasons for praising the Lord from Psalm 147, is you should, you should underline all the words that describe who God is and what He does and what He has done. All those words. Just underline all those words. And when you underline all those words, you're going to get a wonderful description of who God is and how powerful He is and how loving He is and how good and how kind and how gracious and then you're going to read, but, verse 16, they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey. Then you're going to read, verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. 28, but after they had rest, they again did evil before you. And you're going to read those passages of Scripture that compare the faithfulness of God to the unfaithfulness of Israel. And somehow we need to identify with the reality of that in our nation today. We need to identify with the fact that we need to confess our sins. Fortunately, the response is good. Fortunately, the children of Israel were willing to acknowledge and confess their sin. So we need to communicate God's word. We need to celebrate God and the joy of the Lord being our strength. We need to confess our sins. And number four, we need to commit to God to live the way He wants us to live. Chapter 10. 
Verse 28, now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, on and on, on and on. Verse 29, they joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God. And they entered into a commitment, a covenant to obey the word of God. And in chapter 10, we have six ways that they did it. We have six promises that they made. But I just want you to know that the response is what really excites me. They said, you know what? We've disobeyed the Lord. We haven't honored Him in our national life, in our personal lives. We haven't honored Him at all. So we want you to know that we're committed to living the way the Lord wants us to live. And I want to boil this down for you because there are six promises there that they, they want to agree to. I'm not going to go through them. But if I were making maple syrup, and this is the time of the year to make maple syrup, right? February was always the big month for that, for the most part. If I were making maple syrup, I would tap the tree, and I would get the sap from the tree, and I'd bring it and take it to the boiler, and we would just boil it all down, right, until we had this nice maple syrup. So we take the sap, the watery sap, and boil it down into maple syrup. If I had to boil down all six of these promises they make, if I had to do that, because I think this is critical for us in this day and age in which we live. If I had to boil down all of these things, I would say they all relate to this very simple principle and problem that we face in the day and age in which we live. When Paul writes his letter to the Romans in chapter 12, verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's it. All six of these promises have to do with being conformed to this world. All six of these problems that he's talking about have to deal with the fact that we've been uncommitted to the Lord and we have been living in a society that continually has become less godly, less interested in honoring the Lord. And you know what? We have found ourselves just going along with the flow. We found ourselves just conforming to the society in which we live. And I imagine that many of our forefathers would look on us in this day and age and say, What? Is that what believers are doing now in the 20th century? Never heard of such a thing. Never heard of such a thing. It was, uh, it was uh, David Jeremiah who wrote the book entitled, I Never Thought I Would See the Day. How many of you have seen his book? David Jeremiah wrote a book. He's a famous pastor in this country and uh, preaches every week and probably millions of people watch him. But he wrote a book entitled, I Thought I Would Never See the Day. And he has like 12 chapters in there of things that are happening in our day and age that we would have never dreamed would be possible in previous generations. Well, let me give you the final point. We need to communicate the Word of God. We need to celebrate. The joy of the Lord needs to be our strength. We need to celebrate God's faithfulness, His willingness to help us. His goodness, His kindness, His generosity. We need to confess our sins. 
It's good to compare God's faithfulness with our unfaithfulness. We need to commit to God to live right. And number five, the last one, we need to confront things that compromise the rebuilding process. We need to confront the things that compromise the building process. I'm going to give you a couple quick illustrations here. If you'll turn with me to chapter 13. We'll skip over the next two chapters. They deal with some, um, some interesting plans, but don't serve our purpose this morning. Go to chapter 13, and I want you to look at verse 4 and following. This is Nehemiah, the governor. Love the Lord. Dealing with the rebuilding process, no doubt frustrated to the core on what comes next. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah. Wait a a second. Let me read that again. Now before this, Eliashib, the, the, the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah. Now wait a minute. Go back to Nehemiah chapter 2. And let's look at verse 10. Right after the Bible tells us that Nehemiah was sent to Judah to help rebuild that nation, the Bible tells us that he went to Judah through the other provinces from the capital city of Persia where he lived. And when Sabalot, verse 10, the Horonite, and who? Tobiah the Ammonite heard of it. They were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. And so for the next few chapters, the unrelenting opposition that we have to the rebuilding of Israel comes from these two men plus others that are pulled into it. Sabalot. And Tobiah. And here's Nehemiah saying, well, you know, Tobiah is living in the temple precinct. Look at verse 5. And he, Eliashib, had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine, the oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the offerings of the priests. So they moved all that stuff out and gave to Eliashib. He's the high priest. He is the high priest of Israel. And he has made a room for Israel's, one of Israel's worst adversaries in the temple precinct. Verse 7, Nehemiah says, But during all this time, I wasn't there, because I had gone back to Persia. And he had gone back to Persia, as he promised. He was there for 12 years, about 11 or 12 years. He had gone back to Persia. And now he had, and he had asked to return back to Israel. And he said, when I got back to Israel, that's when I found out what was going on. And I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. 
And what was his response in verse 8? You might think, well, confronting things that compromise the rebuilding process? Well, there are five examples in chapter 13. And in every every single example, we have words similar to this one in verse 8. And it grieved me bitterly, therefore I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. Now, if that isn't confrontation, I don't know what is. Verse 11 Another confrontation. And I contended with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Verse 12. Then all Judah brought the tithes of the grain. Don't look at verse 12. Let's Let's look at verse 17. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do which you profane the Sabbath day? Verse 21, then I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Verse 25, so I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God saying, you shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons nor take their daughters for your sons to yourselves. Now, you probably say, oh, I need a couple explanations on this pastor. Well, the first explanation that I'll give to you is profaning the house of the Lord. When Nehemiah came to Judea, he found out that there were men in Judah who were bringing their, their wells, their wares, they were peddling their wares, and they were bringing them to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And Nehemiah says, you can't do this. Not only that, but men from Tyre were coming over the mountain, and they're from a different territory, and they were coming over the mountain, and they were bringing their wares to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And Nehemiah said, you can't do that. You can't do that. We, you cannot profane the Sabbath day. You cannot neglect the Lord on the Sabbath day. And so he said, so that's where the contention comes in verse 17. Verse 25, the contention is a totally different thing. Verse 25, and, and, and the only way to appreciate this, because I've often read this myself and I've said, boy, this seems like an overreaction. This seems like an overreaction. But the only way to understand this probably is to look at it in the context of verse 28. And we'll, we'll conclude with this. And one of the sons of jo- jo- Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Tobiah, earlier, now it's Sanballat. He's married... His daughter is married to a high priest's son. I'm thinking, whoa, no wonder Nehemiah is so upset. Because that disqualifies him for being a high priest down the road. But listen, when you read this, if you've read this, I don't know how many of you have read this this week, but I I just want to say to you that when you read this, you're going to look at all of this stuff and you're going to, you're going to say, wow, isn't God trying to purify the nation of Israel to the point where there's just nobody you can rub shoulders with who doesn't know the Lord? No, not at all. He's not saying that pagans can't marry pagans. He's not saying you can't do business with business people who don't know the Lord and love the Lord. He's not saying that. He's merely saying that if you love the Lord, you should marry someone who loves the Lord. And certainly if you're a high priest, that's a requirement for you because if you don't, you can't be a high priest. But you'll see that clearly. 
Paul, even in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, says to us, and in a, if I were to take this into the New Testament and give you a book that describes the kind of society we're living in, I would give you 1 Corinthians. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians, yeah, you're going to get up every day and you're going to go outside and you're going to meet a lot of people who don't know the Lord. You're going to meet a lot of people who don't live right. You're going to do business with a lot of people who could care less about God. You're going to do business with a lot of people and rub shoulders with people who just don't have the same moral values we do. Paul says, I'm not asking you to change the society by looking at any one person or any group specifically and saying, you know what, I want nothing to do with you. Paul says you'd have to go out of the world. He says, but we need to pay attention to what's happening in the church. I stopped at the gas station to get gas this morning. And I'm, I'm in my suit, and there was a couple come out of the gas station, and they're in clothes, and I knew there was no way in the world they were going to church this morning. Now, is it my responsibility to hate them for that? No. Is it my responsibility to shun them for that? No. Is it my responsibility to say, I want nothing to do with you because you obviously don't know the Lord and, um, and I just can't talk to you? Is that what God wants us to do in our society? Is that what God is asking them to do? No, God is saying, pay attention to what you're doing. The church needs to pay attention to what we're doing. If we're going to be salt and light, we need to get our act together. We need to stop profaning the Lord's day. We need to stop. We need to make sure that we're dealing with all of these issues as far as the church is concerned. God will take care of the rest. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And I thank you for Nehemiah because of how much of human nature we learn from that book. Lord, it will do us well in the years ahead when we deal with situations so similar to what they faced in their society. And Lord, I just pray in your precious name that you would help us as a church to understand our obligations and our responsibilities. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be the salt and the light you want us to be as we do what you want to rebuild a society that has just slipped into a dark period of time. In your precious name we pray, amen. Let's all stand together. And let's close together with our song of invitation, 295, Into My Heart, Into My Heart, Lord Jesus. We sang the song, oh, Our Great Savior, Come In to Lord, I Receive You Today. We do that hopefully every day in the spirit of our hearts and in our minds as we connect with the Lord. But here, we're asking you to come to Christ. Do you know that you're a sinner? All of sin comes short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Will you come to Christ? Will you say, Lord, I want you to forgive me of all of my sin. I said to a, I talked to an Islam, I just, just mentioned to it. I have a friend who is, uh, lives in Saudi Arabia, and he's, he's Muslim. And I said to him, I says, you know, I says, there's so many similarities between, between us. You know, we all are, want families, and we all want good jobs, and we all want life. And I says, but I can never accept Islam. I can never accept Islam. 
because it omits the atonement of Christ. Where salvation comes not through good works like every other religious group on the face of the earth, but Christ paid the penalty for sin. I, we need to appreciate that like we've never appreciated it before because the world really needs to hear that. Will you come to Christ and have him forgive you and wash you from all of your sin through your personal faith in him as we sing together into my heart?